when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, hello. You found Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this week, we've got Austin Walker. Hey. And Kato. Hi. And today, we're going to be discussing, uh, in the first segment, the musical Hamilton, which I finally saw due to a Christmas gift from my parents over the holidays. Uh, <laughs> and then in the second segment, we're going to be discussing Knives Out, but I'm going to warn you up front here that the nature of Knives Out is such that you can't really say a lot of interesting things until you begin getting into plot details and spoilers. This is a movie where a lot of the pleasure is seeing how it is going to come together and experiencing some of the twists uh, from a naive perspective. So if this is an experience you're looking forward to ha- to having, I strongly recommend maybe you you put a pin in this podcast and uh, come back to, come back to it after you've seen the movie uh, because that second se- that second segment is going to spoil the entire film. Uh, but first, uh, yeah, so over the <laughs> winter break, I finally, 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 Saw the saw Hamilton. Uh, I was visiting family in Chicago, and they bought us tickets to go check out the Chicago production before it closed. And I I was surprised by my reaction because I fully expected to be much more negative on the play. Mm. Um, and I think part of that is, and this is kind of what I wanted to put put to y'all. The thing I've been trying to figure out is, is Hamilton itself kind of an insidious or toxic work? Or is it mostly the phenomenon that is Hamilton and the fan base it attracted and the discourse around it that kind of poisoned the well? Like, is Hamilton just one of those unfortunate works that becomes way more popular and bears way more cultural significance than the work itself can sustain? I think it's a good question. Uh, I want to say up top, I've listened to the, the Hamilton soundtrack 0.8 times. 0.8? I could not get through Couldn't it, even get all the way through? Um, no, I couldn't. Damn. I couldn't. Uh, my relationship with the show is pretty distant. Mm. Uh, outside of uh, distant and made more distant because of the, the kind of cultural um, response to it that, that you're gesturing to here, Rob, right? Mm. Like... I don't know about y'all, but it was unbearable. Um, <laughs> uh, I went very quickly from trying to get tickets to see it to never wanting to see it on my feed. If I was a better person, I would have muted it uh, and <laughs> saved myself uh, a lot of uh, grief. But instead, I just kind of like, uh, okay, white people, 
y'all are really into this, huh? Which is reductive, obviously. It's a it's a show led by a man of color uh, and starring lots of people of color, and a show that completely is, except for one except one for character. one character who's yeah. King King uh, George, right? Is yeah. is yep. uh, yeah, dude. Um, and uh, obviously is is a show that's been supported by you know many black and brown folks, uh, and enjoyed by many black and brown folks. Um, but the response to it always felt like it carried a degree of hand washing um, of the people liking it, if that makes sense. Like it was your gateway away from I listen to everything except for rap and country to a world in which you could say I like conscious hip hop. Of course, mm. rap can be art. Like, um, and and when I say those things, like I, I very, I truly m- mean that that was the way I was seeing it deployed <laughs> by uh, kind of a cultural coastal elite type, you know, media elite folks who were above forty five. You know, um, <laughs> uh, lots of people in our age group, lots of white folks in our age group came up on hip hop, uh, and in fact, I think much mo- most of the cynicism I've seen about. Uh, that show come from people in our age group across racial lines uh, who find it suspect as a cultural product. Um, And I guess, no, I think it's what you said. Find its success suspect because it seems as if its success is tied to the project of like a certain class of folks deciding to pull wool over their own eyes about American history, deciding to Mm -hmm. distance themselves uh, very publicly distance themselves uh, from a sort of r- racialized distaste for hip hop, stuff like that, right? So my arc with this was I listened to the cast album a few times and I liked it, but I think the thing that surprised me when I listened to the cast album is how much I liked the non-hip-hop tracks more than the stuff that was being celebrated as the brand of Hamilton, right? To me, it was the weakest parts of that show were frequently the bits where there was rapping. When it went in a traditional Broadway show tunes direction, mm-hmm. it was like, okay, this like this is decent Broadway music. Right, well, like, that's uh, the thing lot. is you get to compare it to Broadway music at that point and not to hip-hop, which is... And listen, I'm not saying... <laughs> I, I, I am saying I am saying that Lin Manuel Miranda is not like a top tier rapper, <laughs> like no, uh, no, at all, or or a, a writer of rap songs. Um, I am saying that, and so like when I make that comparison, it is not, it is not a generous comparison uh, for for him to to bring on. But that's not the audience that he would. Like, it's a Broadway show. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I get it. I get it. Right. So there's a bit of there's a little bit of pretense with 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 Hamilton. And I think the other part of this uh, for me is that if you look at Hamilton as an artifact of 2015 when it was released and it becomes this phenomenon through 2015 and 2016, uh, and then it becomes a little bit of like a resistance cult object uh, in the wake of the 2016 election, I think the other thing that really works against this play is that it purports to be about... I was having this conversation with Troy Goodfellow the other day. Uh, he's my uh, co-host on Three Moves Ahead. He's a big musical theater nerd. But he made, he made a good point that Hamilton is a musical that pretends it is about ideas, mm-hmm. and it is not. Like Ultimately, it is a story of 
kind of an ambitious asshole and the effect he has on the people around him. But he's meant to be valorized or rendered into a hero because supposedly he's on the cutting edge of this movement more for freedom, right? He is a man of high ideals and conviction. And even listening to the cast album, it doesn't really hang together. Like the glimpses we get of him being a leader of like the things that, you know, the, the things he's juxtaposed against early in the play is the very pragmatic Aaron Burr, whose tragic flaw is that he's constantly waiting for the right moment to make his move and uh, advance socially. And he's waiting and waiting and history passes him by. Uh, but Hamilton, his point is that Burr is paralyzed by indecision and lack of conviction. But I, Hamilton, am a man of conviction. I'm a man of strong beliefs. And our evidence for that is he thinks America should be independent. That's basically it. Uh-huh. But like this is he's like, man, America is an awesome idea. I'm going to rap about it. And everyone's like, God damn, this kid's amazing. Like, listen to him talk about how we should be an independent country. What an incredibly transgressive idea supported by a lot of the elites of uh-huh. Northeastern society. Yeah, right. And a lot of the, the slave owning elites, by the way, which, again, we don't really get into much in 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 the soundtrack that I listened to four years ago. Like, again, I was one of the cards on the table here. I'm not saying that I'm up on two references, I think, to slaves. Thank you, Kata. In one song. Yeah. I listen to this yeah. thing a lot. Good. Honestly. And it's mostly used, it's deployed really opportunistically as a burn yeah. against Jefferson yeah. at one point where it's like, we know who's really doing the planting down south, Jefferson. <laughs> Got him. And it's like, <laughs> ah, ah. yeah. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. Come on. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but I mean, like, fuck Thomas Jefferson. Also, da, 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 but <laughs> yeah, yeah. but I, but I think the but I think the point here is, is that one of the things that I think Hamilton suffers from is as a as a cultural object, it was positioned as inspiring in part because it has it's casting. Uh, <laughs> it's it's casting the 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 founding fathers and founding mothers as people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's telling the story through uh, through rap, but also I I think because of that we were it's sort of positioned as somehow the story of Hamilton himself, an immigrant, a striver who rose to the top of colonial society, mm-hmm. should also be inspiring, and. Watching it from the vantage of today, but I think even listening to it back in like 2016 as this phenomenon took off, I still find myself wondering for, I still find myself waiting for the part where like, when does this become particularly admirable, Mm. right? Like when does, when, when do we see evidence that this guy actually has beliefs in ideas beyond himself whose promulgation and pursuit of those beliefs doesn't advance his own interests because Hamilton is richly rewarded for every stance he takes. Right. This is the other thing is, you know, he is a man. He is a man of strong conviction that America should be free. And he slots right under George Washington's, you know, wing and rises to become uh, the secretary of the treasury and the architect of the national bank. Uh, these, you know, this is someone who becomes enormously wealthy and powerful through his political activity. And so it's one of those, it's a tough sell yeah. 
for this guy to be read as some sort of idealistic hero. But I think in terms of the cultural phenomenon of Hamilton, that is how that play and that story was positioned. Yeah. And it never sat well. How do y'all feel the like... Uh, this, go ahead if you have something else. Uh, I was just going to say that it always... It felt like an attempted reclaiming at the building of this country. Like the way that yes. it was actually built off the back of immigrants and slaves and like the the people who who built this were those people but like this kind of like um i don't want the word that came to mind was facile but i don't know uh just like replace like like slotting in this of is exactly what I, brown yeah. Yeah. and black bodies the, but for the people who it's were, still founding fathers it's right still, <laughs> the specific thing i want to know is like how do y'all feel and and engage with the still fundamental beating heart of the the kind of like great man of history, right? Like engine that still seems to be at the heart of this work. Or I mean, I guess to, to counter that a little bit, there's I guess you could make the case that part of what the play does is offer focal point on interiority of of the supposed great men, right. revealing them to be complicated and to have you know love lives and to make mistakes and da 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 da. But I a large f- part of that second act is his fuck ups and yeah, totally. That whole but I think that, that also happens with the with classic great sure. men of history stories. Do you know what I mean? That like the yeah. the great oh wow, but also check out look what he sacrificed or look at the ways in which his personal life were was troubled while he was pushing forward pro- the capital P pro- American progress. Right. Um, uh, and I think that that stuff that stuff can grate with me, but I'm curious as people, you listen to the show way more than me and you've seen it now. Is that a fair uh, complaint for me to make? Um, Or or does that kind of drift, drift away? So it's, this is one of those, this is where I became, I was surprised by Hamilton. Um, I think in terms of it being a play that tells that story, look, this is a character driven play about the founding of the founding of the United States. Like it's going to be a great man, uh, yeah. vision of yeah. history that's that's presented. Uh, but I think the thing that I found interesting here is that, and, and Kato, you were alluding to it, the second half of the play is, is really increasingly tragic. And I think one of the things that caught me off guard here is, th- like, when you're actually seeing it staged, you're not just listening to the big numbers, but you're watching the staging and the way the story is told on the stage... In a lot of ways, Hamilton doesn't seem like the heart of the play. He is the driving character, but in terms of who is the emotional center of the play, it's two people who Hamilton, through his ambition, through his vanity, uh, ends up kind of mangling. And that's Aaron Burr and uh, his wife, Eliza uh, Shiler. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that makes Hamilton tricky for me is that Again, in like the the Hamilton fandom and discourse and the the numbers that tend to get quoted, uh, there's a lot of sort of blind praise of Hamilton in some ways. But I think the story the play is actually telling is this is somebody who pulled people into his orbit and changed their lives, often not for the better, right? Like... The first half of the play is sort of the traditional, like, the great man's climb. The second half of the play is, this is a guy who, because of his arrogance, because of his vanity, because uh, the values he inculcates around him, uh, you know, his son, his son ends up getting killed in a duel uh, because he thinks this is this comes with the territory of being 
uh, Alexander Hamilton's son. Mm. Uh, he ends up estranged from his his wife uh, because he's a faithless husband. And then he makes all the family business public because he's trying to restore his reputation. Uh, and then finally, like Aaron Burr, uh, and this is probably where the play takes the most liberties. Like Burr is a way stranger figure than this play makes out. The, it <laughs> makes way too much of his relationship with Hamilton. Uh, but nevertheless, in the plays, in the plays version of this, Burr is sort of an ordinary, talented guy who has the misfortune of coming in second place behind Hamilton. And watching the staging of this. Hamilton becomes a figure that is harder to sort of celebrate. Um, he comes across as someone who, like, I think the the reading that he's kind of out for himself is kind of there in, in, in the play, that he, that he kind of doesn't think about how he affects other people. I think that's all there in the staging. It's just weird that it doesn't seem to... That reading doesn't seem to have become the popularly understood. Yeah, that is not that is yeah. it's immigrants we get the job done, right? That yeah. is the yeah. popular response to which which I would say must be frustrating for Miranda, except it doesn't seem to be. Do you know what I mean? Like no. I've seen interviews with that dude so many times about him talking about how how you know motivated or how how inspired he was after reading the biography. Now this is an American character, like without really Framing well, it, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that, that interview's out no. there. I just haven't seen it. See, this is the thing that I was kind of. I think it's easy for Hamilton to take too much shit because of its fan base and because of the the cultural phenomenon that built up around it. But at the same time, what I couldn't figure out was, like, yes, the work was adopted by and celebrated by a pretty cynical and uh, vapid class of elites. Uh, because believe me, that is who could afford to see that show yeah. in 2016, yeah. right? Like tickets were wildly expensive. I, yeah. Um, they it was still do a, one, the one thing I will give them is that every single show does have the first two rows sold at $10. Mm. Uh, but it is a lottery. That's pretty cool. So many people. It's a lottery, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Definitely tried to win that lottery but, for that one week. When yeah, I was like, yeah, I'll, for I'll sure. see that for sure. <laughs> but the, the question I come away with is like, is the work itself also meant to pander to people like that, right? Because, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda has spent a lot of his life among that class of people. Yeah. Like, he is, like, his father, uh, Luis, is, like, he has been a player in New York politics for 40 years. Like, he was part of the Ed Koch inner circle. Um, and, like, Manuel Miranda is a graduate of Hunter College High School, uh, which is a, an elite like prep school in New York that uh, Chris Hayes, his fellow graduate, uses as an illustration of how meritocracy is becoming completely hollow in the United States uh, in Hayes' book, Twilight of the Elites. And then there's an entire, and, and uh, the New Creep published a really good piece by uh, Shalyn Rodriguez and uh, Iris Depini uh, over about the, the Mirandas, uh, father mm. and son, and their kind of complicated relationship with Puerto Rican politics. And so there is this element of, to a degree, you can say, ah, well, Hamilton can't be blamed for the fan base it attracted. But also... You know, 
was Miranda not also courting exactly that kind of fan base, right? Was he also like writing these numbers and highlighting the notion of Hamilton as, you know, as an immigrant whose whose bootstrap story uh, is is quintessentially about American America's ability to include uh, is he also courting that? Is he also inviting it and flattering uh, rather than providing any kind of critique? And I think there's a lot of evidence to say that he was. I, you know, I the the thing for me is I don't even need to know his heart. I don't even need to know if he was intentionally writing a a musical to court those folks. What seems to be reflected is that his aesthetics have developed in such a sense that that is what he made. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, uh, not to not to like go back to my old my old classics of like not really caring about intent and thinking about negligence and thinking about you know blurring the line between in, intent and work and all that stuff. But like I I that is what he made. What what he made was like a show that had a lot of you know black and brown people on stage. But I don't again correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember a black or brown character. Like outside of the representation of white folks as black and brown folks, what he made was this is, is that is that true? Does anyone know off the top of their head? No, it's it's hundred percent true. This is Sally. Sure, good. Uh huh. Um. So that is that is. But also, I think on top of that, the the made a show that that the the folks that you're talking about who who loved it so much were able to. I the thing that I ended up taking away from that that entire era of our, our pop cultural thing was like, that's a show that I probably would have loved in 2008 at the height of like Obama center left hope politics. Hey, we can all uh, uh, try to reach this universal American dream. Um, uh, and, you know, I, to just to situate myself there too, that was a moment of me like swallowing my pride and moving towards some sort of more centrist pragmatism and, and also genuine, genuinely being moved by seeing Obama's campaign. Um, I was not an Obama supporter at the start of that, that primary season. I became one over the course of that campaign uh, and then was disappointed for eight years. Do you know where, uh, when, where and when the first Hamilton show was performed? No, by where was Nobel? it? Yep. In yep. Uh, 2009. Ah, at the White House as part of their, wow. like, in, uh, I think it was a poetry, so like, symposium of some sort. I forget exactly what. That's but he incredible. performs the opening song then. And so that had not Obama. debuted yet as no, a show? No, that, that was just, like, this is the thing I'm working wow, on right now. Wow, that's wild. There's, here's the first song. So, yeah, that is, and so, like, <laughs> it reflects to me that a lot of the same stuff we talked about with the newsroom, which is a sort of liberalism that w- wants to say... Hey, liberalism is still is still valid in 2010. Hey, like there is a there is a story about about you know people who just want to get the job done, who just want to do the work that's necessary to make make this country great and sometimes they have individual problems, but that could be you. You could be the person who steps in front of the plane and reports the news. You could be the person <laughs> who, who like, uh, uh, it doesn't matter what, what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what, and literally does that by just recasting historical figures uh, uh, with, with different races. Right. Um, and that never sat right with me because I came to this play after eight years of the Obama presidency when I had kind of like, you know, bit by bit by bit, moved back further and further and further to the left, seeing that the center left and that this promise was not true, seeing that the the sort of American dream promised here 
did not actually apply equally, right? That yeah. There were still indefinitely uh, extra hurdles, extra costs. Um, and I think part of my just general distaste for the response to this play is that the, the hope at the heart of it the hope that there is an America out there for people like us and that we were written into it from the beginning. And this is sort of like revealing that we were written. Like it's not a rewriting of history that says, what if black and brown people had been counted at the, t at the top of the country and right. forced to be reckoned, you know, this, this uh, terrible, you know, travesty was, was forced to be reckoned with. This is just a world in which we say like, what if we palette swapped? Right. Um, and <laughs> that has, that just, that part of it has never sat right with me because no. the modern reception of it, from from liberals specifically has been a sort of like, and now we can spread that myth to everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, There's go on, cut up. The only saving grace of that is that materially it is giving jobs to those people. Absolutely, and like absolutely. It's like I yeah, like I don't know, I don't know. Either either way, like it's ultimately it does feel like even with the like kind of dip in. Uh, uh, it like near the end where like shit goes bad for him. I still feel like his final like moments in that play turn to like the like his like final monologue definitely turns it to be like a kind of tragic mm. character that like almost like circles back around on him being like worth valorizing instead of like putting the pin in like you fucked up dude. Mm. <laughs> like uh, I don't know. So like yeah. I've listened to this well, to that cast recording so many times when it came out and have since had like a very up and down relationship with it. Um I never actually have even like cams exist, but so like I don't know at all, but I've never watched any of them. Like so the I don't staging know at all or anything like that. What that final staging looks like in that monologue or if anything else reads out of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh, and that, that's, that's a big part of it. Like, I think the frustrating thing about, I, I think there's, there's also something about the nature of the way a work like Hamilton becomes a, like a national phenomenon in that Broadway theater is the most exclusionary, like medium in the United States probably like short of like high-end gallery pieces. Right. But like even that, that's just part of the, the art world. You can go look at like art. It's still part of that. Like Broadway theaters, uh, Broadway theater, Broadway plays are a major cultural output in the United States. And they do affect like public discourse, but it is completely beyond the reach of most people. And there is no real attempt to make that, accessible by wider audiences. And I think this is one area where things have gotten worse. Like I remember in the seventies and eighties, like public television would air filmings of plays, right? Like these were not hard to find. Uh, you, you would see recorded performances of, of plays on TV and you could, you could watch them and you could at least take part in that sense. Right. It's not, it's not the easiest way to, experience the medium because obviously the, the the entire point is you are sitting there watching the staging yourself the minute you have have camera people making those decisions about framing 
the work is changing a little bit. But nevertheless, I think 30, 40 years ago, the stuff was maybe a little more accessible. I think all of that's getting more clamped down. Like people like will get to see Hamilton when inevitably a film adaptation is made of Hamilton. Yeah. But until then, here's this cast album. Here's a collection of Spotify Hamill drops. Uh, and you'll just have to use your imagination. What and, is, one second. Qu- uh, query. What's a Hamill drop? Oh. Uh, uh. <laughs> so the Hamilton phenomenon <laughs> was so big that like, look, everyone can, everyone can be in Hamilton. Uh, just imagine the world of Hamilton being a place where tons of popular music Bruh, I just pulled it off. Right. I can't do this. Uh, this is a lot. This is a lot. I knew that that mixtape happened. Yeah. I knew that that mixtape happened. Did the Decemberists do one on they Benjamin did. Yeah, Franklin? That's the first they one. Did. That's the first one. I love, I, you know what? I love any project that can go. Ben Franklin song, the Decemberists. Wrote my way, wrote my way out. Remix. Royce to 5'9". Joiner, Lucas, and Black Thought. That's, you know, okay. If you put Royce and the Decemberists on the same project, that's, I can't complain. I can complain yeah. a little bit. But, <laughs> but I mean, this, this is my point, though. Boom is, Goes the Cannon by Mob Deep. Wow. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> there there's there is an element of any Broadway play that is purporting to be about urgent and important ideas in American public life is inherently kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth, yeah. right? Because ultimately Broadway tickets are wildly expensive and audiences are overwhelmingly white and by and large they live in new york right so like this is this is who tends to find this stuff accessible uh and i think that's that becomes a problem for works like hamilton that that are trying to say ah broadway can be for everyone we're sort of breaking we're breaking these stuffy old definitions of broadway musicals we're busting them wide open but who are you busting it wide open to to the same people who see you know all the all the major shows on broadway what am I looking at? What did you hand me? That here? is just the last, the, the most oh, recent okay. Hamilton yeah, drop. Barack Obama is on the most recent <laughs> Hamilton drop. That's good. Um, yeah. The the I mean, so I, I I guess I could make that you can extend the case that Kata made earlier, which is like, hey, there are real people of color being paid off this, and you you could start to make the case that you're kind of pushing back against here, Rob. That like, hey, does this change? Broadway in five or ten years, over the course of the next few decades. Are there more, you know, people of color uh, uh, who get to be show creators, who who get to be composers, who get to, you know, be showrunners and stuff like that? Uh, Does music less like traditional show tunes get to find uh, its footing more so on on Broadway? And I think you can give that to Hamilton because of what a huge cultural thing it was. But I also kind of feel like this might be a situation of like – if Hamilton didn't exist, you know, the world would have to create it. Um, something was going to dis- – something on, you know, on Broadway was going to decide hip-hop was the cool new thing uh, in the same way that something on Broadway had to decide at some point that rock music was the cool new thing um, and begin to make that transition. Uh, and as is appropriate, it happened 20 years after hip-hop was the cool new thing, uh, mm-hmm. 30 years after hip-hop was the cool new thing. <laughs> um, uh, 20, because you said 2000. Eight was the first 
was the when first, he made the first song. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so let's say let's let's he was right say twenty and wave our hands a little bit. <laughs> um, the uh, the I, I also just don't know that that is enough because I you know what I think it's almost appropriate in some ways, right? Like if if the one of the complaints about Hamilton is it is presenting the same stuffy mythologizing of the founding fathers, except now the founding fathers are black and brown uh, and are immigrants or, you know, are are contemporary immigrants instead of immigrants of the day, white immigrants, wherein that term means something much different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then maybe it's appropriate that also the, the best possible outcome is the market of Broadway also gets a little more black and brown, but it's still the market of Broadway. It's still, it is still this, like you said, Rob, kind of highfalutin, uh, inaccessible f- media form uh, for people who not only have the monetary access, because because like you, Kato, plenty of people can listen to uh, Broadway recordings, you know, cast recordings, stuff like that, um, but also have the cultural, like, education towards, towards appreciating work like that, right? Like, there is very little conversation that happens, I think, about the ways in which aesthetics, aesthetic taste is formed. Um, I guess we've talked before about, you know, hidden curricula and stuff like that, but that applies just as much to taste as it does to knowledge. Um, you don't come out, you don't, you know, come into this world uh, believe, knowing what makes a good uh, Broadway musical number. Mm-hmm. You don't come, you know, out of the womb being like, you know what, I have strong feelings about guys and dolls. Um, what you have is like an experience of going through a theater program or watching recordings with people who like them, um, or being just exposed to a broad variety of music that ends up moving you towards musical theater. You know, like there is a particular history of that stuff and the availability of that stuff is racialized in this country and is, and is, you know, uh, also stratified by class, like, um, which is not to say that there are not obviously black and brown fans of musical theater in the same way that there aren't. It's not to say that there aren't like, you know, uh, impoverished folks who really love cats. Motherfuckers love cats. <laughs> yeah. I saw cats. It was an experience. Um, uh, and and that is true. But like also in the same way that access to any high form of cultural you know production is gated that is also the case with with broadway stuff and so the idea of like now the gate is brown <laughs> is just doesn't quite move my heart but feels almost appropriate for for the work i don't know uh, you know it's yeah. it is we- it has been a weird decade of hamilton <laughs> yeah if uh if they uh, wait the same amount of time, we will have a Hamilton, uh, two, uh, Hamilton movie. Hamilton. When did they, wait? When did Hamilton actually drop? Twenty six. Uh, twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. So that's uh, when it opened to the public. Twenty twenty five. Yeah. Twenty twenty five. I did you that think math there right. Will be a... It's twenty twenty now. Yeah. Wait, no, sorry, I did not do that math right at all. Add fifteen years to fifteen. Twenty thirty. For what? Are you trying to do the In the Heights interval? Yeah, the In the Heights interval. Yeah. In the Heights dropped in 2005, and the movie is coming out this year, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What was the Jesus Christ Superstar uh, thing? Because I feel like huh. that is much quicker, but maybe I'm wrong. 
I feel like they've always been kind of a gra- It's definitely after the initial runs, right? 73 was the Jesus Christ Superstar film, which was only three years. Three years, wow. Yeah, that That's was fast. That surprising. That's, very fast. That's very fast. <laughs> which also, I think, speaks to maybe why that film's, the, the recording of that film's soundtrack is so popular, is there was not the same time for the cast recording to dominate. You right. Know? Um, anyway. Yeah, yeah. We're I, gonna so, Hamilton. We're gonna get that movie. We're gonna uh, unless yeah. unless in the yeah. Heights completely bombs, I which I doubt it will. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. <laughs> oh, also. Um, no. I mean, inevitably, we're we're gonna get that movie. I suspect it is more a matter of waiting for the traveling shows to suck up every penny. Um, is it also a matter of waiting for the can. next presidential election? <laughs> like when we're out of Trumpian politics and can yeah. Post post whatever this wave of cynicism about the country is, right. you know, in, in in terms of you know the bookmaker mind, right? That that might be that might be when we see something like that. But yeah, it was like I'm glad I finally saw it. Like I was in this weird place where I yeah. had feelings about Hamilton because I listened to the cast album. I was curious if they would change seeing it staged, and like it's a good Broadway show, and that's that's the weird thing is yeah. when you try to make it more than that. Right. That mm-hmm. you start running into problems. Yeah, like, I'd see it. it. Yeah, yeah. It has good numbers. I'd like, pay there's 10 moments bucks. like <laughs> <laughs> I'd get into there's, that. Lottery. There's moments in the second act that that hit me like a gut punch. Yeah. Um, and I think it really is kind of brilliant to have uh, Jefferson sort of turned into a deeply oily opportunist uh, in, in terms of his presentation. Uh, you know, comes back from Europe. Uh, basically, uh, you know, doing traditional, uh, like doing almost like, almost like swing. And then he's like, oh, everyone's rapping. I will, I can rap. And he turns into sort of a, um, Andre 3000, uh, type figure. But then you have the problem of, yeah, but we know a lot of things about Jefferson now. And he's not just an oily opportunist mm-hmm. right he's not just an oily like paul he's <laughs> uh just a nightmarish slave owner um <laughs> and, and uh and rapist so it's it's one of those like there are good beats in this play as as a piece of staging as a piece of performance it really works but at every at every turn you're kind of left wondering like what is this what is this really doing what interest is it really serving and i don't think any of the fandom it attracted didn't did it any favors, <laughs> but may have revealed it in some in some really crucial ways. I wish I'd heard it before it blew up. That's a, I think like to some degree, the expectations are what killed this thing for me. Mm-hmm. Is that by the yeah. time I listened to it, it was because there was this writhing mass of fans who said it was this incredible moving picture of blah 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 blah. You know, like um, I got lucky. My sister's in musical theater, so she go. was just like, "Yo, listen to this thing. right now. This is big. This is gonna get big." <laughs> yeah, totally. That's like, "Yo, uh, do you like hip hop? You want to buy my mixtape outside of the Tower Records, outside of the Virgin Records, or whatever?" Right? Like that's the that that vibe would have gotten me. Like right. because then because then you end up having the thing where like even I would have mythologized. Lin Manuel Miranda in that way, mm-hmm. especially as you don't know what his history is, you don't, you know, what family he comes from or what his family's politics yeah. have been or blah blah blah. You end up just being like, whoa, like this brown dude from here made this wild, cool. Let me listen to this. Mm-hmm. And instead, I came into it already having the baggage of what it supposedly meant to people, um, and that was always going to kind of make it a poison tree in some sense because it had to do more. Like I, there's a world in which it feels like. <laughs> 
if I had thought about it like one of the movies made by the children of home movies, I'd be like, yo, this is cool. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this guy just made this thing? Awesome. Wow. It's on Broadway? Yeah. Crazy. Wow. Look at you. Con- <laughs> brother, let's go. Let's get it. But instead, it was like President Bartlett's favorite musical. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I had to come into it with that with that vibe. So you anyway. think Lin-Manuel Miranda likes the newsroom? <laughs> I bet we could find Lynn Manuel Miranda. Do you think he followed? Do you think he ever followed that fake McAvoy account? Was McAvoy was mm. the name of that? Was that the guy? That's Will Ma- Will Will um, Will McAvoy Will. ACN? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I bet. Do you remember? Do you remember the internet? Do you remember Twitter? God. Whew. Anyway. That was a what a weird what a weird bit the uh, the newsroom. Twitter LARP uh-huh. uh, was and like that the, the Will McAvoy character tried to weigh in on uh, news of the day as if they were oh it was just mm, uh, yeah mwah. Mm-hmm. I just want to just as a note just as a note here a tweet from 2012 Lin-Manuel Lin underscore Manuel third episode of newsroom equals structure of Bartlett for America I am totally fine with this and I want to punch everyone in the face with facts now <laughs> So. so, that is rough. <laughs> That's <sighs> yeah. Uh, I mean, but this was this was so many people. I know. Liberalism. I know it was. This was yeah. like, yeah. and I think this is this is one of the other. And I think this finally is sat down for that, with breakfast. Finally sat down for breakfast with Sorkin. He doesn't know I'm wearing a Bartlett shirt under this hoodie. August eighteenth, twenty seventeen. 2017. It happens. It is. It is the thing. Yeah, I mean, I will admit to liking the West Wing back in the day. Yeah. No. Listen, we've been through this. <laughs> look, I still look. Yeah. I still love all that shit. I see <laughs> awful things in it now. Right. But I'm still like, oh yeah, I like I can quote chapter and verse from that shit. <laughs> right. Well, like you almost. It's. <sighs> Yeah, yeah, we we could get into it. We could get into it. We already got into it. Yeah, but there is the degree yeah. to which it is. You are almost poised to like that. Like it is again. Mm-hmm. There is a, there there is a, a cultural education that is hard to that is hard to pull away from, even if you wanted okay. to. We have to stop. Fuck it. Let's let's get into it. Oh <laughs> Wait, <my God>. Just <laughs> real can we, quick. Can we take a break and let me run to the bathroom first, and then we can get into it? Because we're not going to get into it All real right. quick. Let's take a break. We're gonna please. We're gonna take a break, and then we're gonna we're gonna settle this uh, like West Wing style centrism debate real fast. That's all. Real quick. And then we're gonna hit knives <laughs> out. Spoilers. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right, we'll be right back. Bye. <laughs> When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
so I think to what you were, to what you decided that Miranda tweet about coming out of the third episode of the newsroom and ready to punch people in the face with like facts, facts and reason. Facts. Yeah, heard about these. <laughs> what is the third? Do you know offhand what the third episode was? Um, no, I don't. It. Was it that doesn't matter. Like, I, I want to be Fukushima was going to go sideways from the first minute. I oh, that might have been right. That might be right. No, uh, uh, this this summary doesn't actually give me anything. It's all about the internal stuff. Like it's not. There's now, no the second season of the newsroom. <laughs> that was almost all right. God. But that's the one where they fuck up badly and nearly get uh-huh. taken After an American jet so. is down to the Mideast, President Bartlett urges an attack that could result in thousands of casualties. No, no that's, that's West, West Wing. Wing. Wait, what? You're looking at the West Wing. I oh, I thought you said my brain. No, you, that's the one where Morris <laughs> Tolliver is killed by the yeah. Syrian Defense Ministry. And Wow, you had that on deck, uh, huh? You were like, boom, got it. Damn. Yep. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Uh, yes. I, just real quick, what I want to be clear about is I'm not like, and we should cancel Lin-Manuel Miranda because he made a tweet where he was like, I like the newsroom. Like whatever, I don't give a fuck. Obviously, <laughs> but like, but I, but, but that's not exactly. But I, but no, I. No, but it's a theory it's, of politics. Yes, that is exactly it. Yes, it's a theory of politics and a theory of change. And I think this is one of the really frustrating and deeply fraught things in progressive politics at this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that there was a theory of politics and political change and policymaking that I think. To a degree, Adam's most facile was sort of typified by things like the West Wing. We're going to make apolitical decisions, just guided by good sense data, right? And we're going to bear in mind the well-being of all people, yes. not just white men, but all people. And via that process and via winning argument after argument because our policies are the are the best. They com- they combine the best of traditional uh, populist, like FDR style approaches, with the uh, logic and efficiency of markets. There was an entire theory of change in politics around this that I think it was very easy to sort of fall into in the '90s, uh, and the West Wing, in many ways, typified it, and. In a lot of ways, the change that was posited by that theory was very much someone like Obama. Mm-hmm. Obama is as close as you're probably going to see to a President Bartlett-like figure. And in a lot of ways, not just because his administration was notoriously like lousy with West Wing fans, uh, but, but also in terms of the policy positions Obama tended to adopt and the compromises he tended to seek out often looked a lot like what you might imagine uh, you know, a, a Bartlett-type figure would do. And I think one of the real dividing lines is there are people who really do feel that the Obama years were good. They were fine. That, this, that was how things were supposed to work. Uh, it was good for America. A lot of problems were fixed or at least ameliorated during that period. And there are people who look at that period as both one of massive missed opportunity, crushing yeah. disappointment, and a pretty ir- like a pretty irreversible verdict on the viability of that theory of change. Well, and uh, and and uh, I think an insistence 
that however much was ameliorated, there was still much, much more left to go. Um, and yes. I, I think, frankly, a, a group of folks for whom there was very little left to go, that that haven't we done it? Haven't we gotten there basically? Haven't we made it so that the world so that so that the the high highs of of you know the American elites can be pierced by anyone in this country? Haven't we invested already in da 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 da? Sure, there are outliers, but these are outliers. This isn't systemic anymore. This is individual acts of corruption, which we should which we should absolutely you know uh, step in uh, and and intercede intercede with. But the system works. You just got to keep it clean. And I think what we what you ended up coming out was like, yes, or for me, at least, I came away from that period thinking, one, that system of change will never be able to or that that style of change, that that uh, particular progressive mode of change will never actually address that those larger systemic uh, issues and will will be satisfied, will be like procedurally satisfied. I don't mean individual actors will be satisfied with the degree of change that can come out of that that model of progressive politics, but the literal mechanisms are satiated by basically making it where you know where we can basically get to and then and then we'll deal with edge with what they consider edge cases. Instead of understanding what they think of as edge cases as being systemic or as being natural outgrowths of the system that it's now defending. Um, and that, like you said, I think is so wrapped up in this particular style of liberal politics. Um, and I think it becomes really difficult to have an honest conversation about because the apotheosis of that theory of politics is also America's first black president. Right. Absolutely. And I think it is – that is a figure that in some ways correctly we view as transformational, but also in some really key ways is not tra- is not a transformational figure. Uh, and or we, think- we only count the transformational ways that are good. We don't we don't <laughs> yeah. count, for instance, the transformation of executive privilege of the degrees to which the president can unilaterally decide to take the lives of other people across, you know, in other nation states, which which there was an opportunity to draw a line yes. in the sand and say, hey, the previous administration did that. That is not inherent to what it means to be the president. And instead, we had a transformational presidency where, in fact, now that is the case. We could have had a presidency that put at first and foremost the removal of our troops in the Middle East uh, in an ongoing war against question mark. Uh, and and instead, we had a transformational presidency, one in which that became a fact of life instead of a blip on the long timeline. And of course, it wouldn't be just a blip because the, the United States is basically always been at war anyway anyway but i think you can't get away from the fact that obama sort of his origin story as a national political figure is yes there's the speech he gives at the 2004 uh democratic convention yeah but then how does he beat hillary it is because he is the one who didn't vote for the iraq war yeah like he is the he is the person saying this was a colossal mistake and we need to never make these mistakes again. And he basically embraces the anti-war wing of the democratic party. Yeah. Running rides that to a primary victory. Absolutely. Running, running specifically on, on positioning Hillary as a hawk, which she is to be clear a hundred percent. And yet what we end up having is a sort of presidency built around the, the the carcetti eat shit scene of like you know what yes. you got to make compromises buddy um and but but almost being like all right where's my spoon 
You know what I mean? Like time yeah. to dig in, um, which is which is I think if, if maybe I have a single major criticism of the Obama presidency, it is that enthusiasm to compromise that enthusiasm, uh, which is based off of a mis a misheld belief that there would be a degree to which, hey, you know what? We did it. We I did enough compromising. Now we get health care the right way or something. Yeah. And and I think the where this sort of ties into the sort of liberalism represented by Hamilton is there's a great deal of complacency in that's world in that in that worldview and a great deal of shut the fuck up and let the elites <laughs> handle their business yeah. and the well-meaning elites will take care of things for you but stop whining about your goddamn house being foreclosed on and they might have d- disagreements but let them work it out they are representing the the uh, the disagree—they're almost like they're almost like stand-ins for you and your issues, right? Like, yes, the bank will yeah. have a representative, but guess what? I'm your representative, and the two of us are going to duke it out, literally, actually, at a certain point, and and that's going to be the thing. Like, that's we are we are fighting so that you don't have to shut up. Yeah. Um. And and so I think that becomes I think. Part of the the backlash of Hamilton and, and this theory is that Hamilton very much represents a isn't it enough to have a more representative looking group of people at the top, right? The substance doesn't necessarily have to change. Hamilton is literally what if, as you said, palette swap. What if all these people establishing a slaveholding, <laughs> white supremacist, expansionist, <laughs> colonial state? Uh, hey, what if they're all like black and latino dudes from from new york wouldn't that be awesome and i'm like ah what it well there's they, a, there was a shock could they not there is i think it's supposed to be a shock it's supposed to be a like boom that's weird right it makes you think and again, I think that that works at the at the in 2007 i think that would have worked for me 2008 uh, and then as a student project, as a as like an amateur work, or even just as a thing that exists but hasn't been lionized to the degree that it has, that would have worked for me. Um, a lot of this conversation is yeah. reminding me of a thread I just saw that I think is circ- yeah. circles around this idea that a lot of the stuff that we're criticizing is actually deeply attractive to us, either because we want to listen to it countless times, yes. because it uh-huh. appeals to us. Did you see this thread from Jonathan Wilson on Star Trek The Next Generation the other day? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm just just gonna read it because I think it's worth reading and it's worth setting up for the audience who probably didn't see this thread from this PhD in history, you know, this freelance professor. Um, Star Trek The Next Generation is very seductive nostalgia, being a show about a colonialist government that is tolerant, competent, and possessed of effectively infinite wealth and military power, or in other words, a stand-in for the United States of the 1990s. Uh, You just know that behind all the seamlessly inoperable hardware and software, there's an industrial standards organization that rules the galaxy with a rod of iron. Photon torpedoes are just cruise missiles, but it took J.J. Abrams of all people to make it explicit. The next generation is soothing because it's an idealized self-portrait of the society that created the clapper. To all, which is just brutal. Love it. Uh, to all the people in my mentions, the Federation is, co- is colonialist because every second episode involves a literal feder- Federation colony. The Federation is largely a network of colonies and outposts held together by a fleet. I mean, pay at least a minimal attention here. Some people have countered that the Federation is supposed to be a contrast to the 1990s United States, and that's true in terms of conscious intent, which is why I'm pointing out that it totally fails on that basis in hindsight. It's a utopian and critical self-portrait, but it's still a self-portrait, down to the ways that it promotes the denial of 
of the obvious. For example, the Federation Empire's ludicrous denials that this heavily armed fleet is a military force or that humans enjoy supremacy in the Federation. The other thing that comes up in replies is the Prime Directive. It doesn't change the structure of the Federation, but it does disprove charges of colonial. Uh, uh, but does it disprove charges of colonial aggression? Maybe, but only in the way the principle of national sovereignty is today, imperfectly to say the least. At best, the Prime Directive protects only a narrow kind of people: humanoid civilizations that aren't too humanoid and civilized. At worst, it's treated as pure fiction in practice. But the Prime Directive is mostly irrelevant to my thesis anyway, since, the, since Federation colonialism is based on the same cultural myth of abundant, empty land that European colonialism was. In the beginning, as John Locke says, all the galaxy was America. So the next generation has a really interesting blend of Euro-Americans' most romantic notions of historical European colonialism or what they think it should have been with an idealization of their own society and its power systems in the age of the end of history and democratic enlargement. It is very seductive for Americans of my generations or thereabouts, raised on a set of powerful uh, old cultural myths and contemporary expectations of real-life greatness to game out that mix of historical phenomena as they should have been. I'm not being ironic. Psychologically speaking, it's attractive. I, gener I genuinely like the next generation. Um, it's a fantasy of being the anti-colonial colonizer, the liberating empire, the same fantasy I grew up with for America's place in the world. Um, and and uh, really quick, I want to add on this last thing from a different Jonathan, Jonathan Corman, who adds, um, it is an attempt at, the, at a framework which enables us to reframe the colonialist stories of adventure without the moral horror of colonialism, but it only gives us a sanitized colonialism which justifies it. Uh, and this was like such a fascinating read for me as someone who comes up with the next generation, right? Like the next, the two things I did every Monday night were watch the WWE Raw and then watch the <laughs> episode of Next Generation that came on right after it. I watched, I, you know, watched so many uh, reruns of Next Generation. Then when I got to college, went back and watched the original series. Have since obviously watched a lot of uh, uh, of uh, Deep Space Nine and some Why um, uh, Voyager. Uh, never got around to Enterprise. Yeah. Uh, only watched the first of the J.J. Abrams movies. I think I've watched all of the other films. I think I watched every Star Trek film pre-J.J. Abrams. Um, and I think this is super interesting coming into what's about to launch, which is Picard, the show that seems poised and all of my favorite Star Trek friends are very worried that that's going to be Picard as Will McAvoy, that that's going to be Picard as, like, not my Federation. Um, the premise of this new show seems to be some sort of, some. they're going to do 9-11 in space, Rob. There's synthetics on Mars have attacked and and Picard is somehow breaking with the Federation over the response seems to be the pitch that the show has been making. And so there's a real chance that what we're going to get is Picard as now in the 90s, we did things different under, you know, the true third way Federation. Um, but I think the, the heart of this thing that makes it so interesting to me is the ways in which something I can read this critique. I think it's 100 percent true. And also, if you put on a Next Generation episode right now, I would just be completely lean forward. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, even if I even when I've seen five or six times, because the form is so seductive, the the the, the elements of mystery, the elements of expertise. It is that uh, Plotzian belief in, you know, the the elites being able to work things out. 
out, and the elites in this case are the cat or the, the crew of the Starship Enterprise, and they're elite because they've been trained by a, a system made to build elites. Um, and it is so hard to not hard, but it is it is so worth doing to try to hold to try to recognize that in yourself that attraction and still maintain a degree of criticality. Um, but what I've never been able to do with something like Star Trek is like turn it off all the way. It will always still get me. I think. Um, and I suspect that's true for many people and Sorkin. I suspect that's true for many people and Hamilton or a million other things. Yeah, I mean, like, I will never, I like, I probably never fully turn against a lot of the stuff because the packaging is seductive. What I begin finding interesting about it as I grow older and uh, my worldview changes and a lot of the stuff remains a little bit static um, is it is more obvious now the workings of the rhetoric of mm. these products of, of these shows and they are illuminating in uh, different ways and I find that kind of helpful to revisit uh, because you still hear echoes of this a lot of times, right? Like a lot of people making decisions now, a lot of people in important positions now, when they speak, in some way they are informed by these cultural experiences. They, you will hear echoes of uh, Sorkin liberalism among like among democratic progressive politicians pretty routinely, right? You will you will hear that. You will hear when people talk about. Uh, you know, America's obligations abroad. You will hear echoes of fe yeah. like Federation officers speaking about their mission mm -hmm. and what, what is owed to the galaxy. And I think it is useful to like, I look back at this stuff and frequently, I think the thing I marvel at the most is how wild some of it is to me now and how normal it it made it seem at the time, right? The things that you, you would hear characters just straight up say, and it didn't raise an eyebrow. Whereas now, like in the West Wing, there's the famous episode where, where Toby chews out the world trade organization protesters and basically like complains about how they're just a bunch of dumb college students who need to get off his lawn and they don't know shit about trade. Cause it's such a complicated thing. They should just leave it to the experts. And now from the vantage of a hollowed out American economy uh, and massively like disenfranchised uh, laboring classes or, or people, you know, trapped in the gig economy in a permanent state of precarity, that scene, which at the time was like, yeah, Toby, put those fucking hippies in their place. <laughs> now you look at that scene and you're like, holy shit. What was this show on? Yeah, uh, it is. It is a, the the benefit I think of of us. Be, I mean, this is the thing that ends up happening, right? Is like, once you start talking about taste being produced, once you start thinking about like, hey, the reason that I love Next Generation, the reason that I responded so well to Sorkin, you know, in 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 the era where I did respond well to Sorkin, was because of being put through certain systems of education, formal and informal, um, and so too it is for my distaste of, of Sorkin now. So too is it of my criticality of the same Trek, you know, episodes that I was, was and still am wrapped by, even though now I'm like, hmm. Um, and that ends up introducing a, a really difficult question, which is like, how do you and I and Kato and then also the listener 
do the one recognize when that sort of cultural education is happening, become active in the process instead of a passive recipient of taste, but an active like collaborator with taste with your own internal taste making. And then and then two, like how do you sh shift the, those conversations? How do you move the boundaries? I think part of the thing is is for us as creators is you try to add your voice to that to that space. You try to like, you know, use the the pathways that were built to deliver really anodyne shit and try to send stuff down those pathways that are a little bit more challenging and a little bit more um, – that, that might even feel repulsive to a certain subset of folks but uh, are, are trying to push a conversation a certain way. I mean this is this is to the degree that I'm sympathetic toward the so-called dirtbag left. Like I get that that's how you arrive there is that like, hey, we have to fucking shake this thing. From its from its very core, um, uh, and and I think that, like that is a really difficult mission, and it's a mission that I think ends up with a lot of misstep along the way. And I don't just mean like problematic misstep. I mean like it's easy to make art that no one likes because you're so bounded in by genre expectations. Um, in some ways, in some ways, I'm unintentionally pivoting here um, <laughs> because what I'm what I'm thinking about right now is is Chandler's essay, right? Um, on uh, the simple art of murder. Is that, that's what it's called, right? The simple art of murder? Yep. Um, in which Chandler uh, kind of draws this line between two styles. I mean, he's actually very good in the essay itself uh, about being like, listen, I'm going to say Hammett, but I don't just mean Hammett. I'm going to say, you know, uh, uh, the name of... Uh, Christy. Christy. I know Christy, but I was going to try to say somebody else. But I, I, I'm going to say Christy, but I don't just No, there's the Christy. third one he cites Who's at great the, length that nobody remembers. Right, there's a third one. Is that The third one where he's like a beat-by-beat beat breakdown of this terrible mystery. No, I forget the person's name. Um, and, and does try to basically suggest that the realism in... Dashiell Hammett style hardwell detective fiction, the new American school of, of detective story, uh, is a shock to the system of uh, literature writ large, but especially detective fiction. Um, and that that is a project worth pursuing because there's something even past that, right? Uh, as a summary to this article or to this, this essay that he wrote in the 1940s, he's basically saying um, – Hey, the old style of detective fiction, the prized style in which a sort of charming or doddering detective comes to a quaint town of upper middle class British folks or is on a boat with foreign dignitaries and someone dies and there is a very novel solution to the crime. Maybe there's a duplicate, a twin. Maybe there has been so – someone has been framed. Uh, maybe someone has been poisoned in a unique way. Um, fails to represent the reality of life, right? The, the famous line from it is something like, you know, uh, God, what is it, Rob? Do you know the, the one I'm thinking about? About Hammett giving murder back to the people who do it. <laughs> Something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and and then he pivots to talk about the the kind of value of the hard world detective novel uh, as being about the fear that comes from, or being about like the real difficult case, which is the murder not planned for a, you know a decade, not the not the secret machinations of someone who thinks themselves a genius, but the murder decided two minutes before it happens, and that is the the real interesting story, the the story that connects to to real people, to to real to real life. But then he has his third movement that I don't actually see represented in summaries that often, um, uh, in which he says, even Hammett's work 
theoretically, even Chandler's work is only a stepping stone because all it does is prove that the form could take on a third set of mysteries, a third set of third set of murderers. And what he means by that and what he says by that is corruption all around us is the corrupt senator, is the landlord, is the the, you know, the 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 elite who is secretly a murderer or who is stealing money from their tenants or who is, you know, uh, uh, doing the same crimes that they may uh, claim that they are rallying against. Um, and that is the sort of fiction that he hopes follows once proven out by hard-boiled detective fiction, but is still presumably written in the tongue of of America, right? Still written in the, the average tongue, still written in a, a, a literary style that is... Can I quote the Hammett passage Please, here? absolutely. So, go for it. He is, not the Hammett, the, Chan, the, the Chandler, Chandler yeah, passage. Yeah, yeah, I He's so fucking good. <laughs> Hammett gave murder back to the kind of people that commit it for reasons, not just to provide a corpse, and with the means at hand, not with hand-rot dueling pistols, uh, curare, or tropical fish. He put <laughs> these people down on paper as they are, and he made them talk and think in the language they customarily used for these purposes. He had style, but his audience didn't know it, because it was in a language that was not supposed to be capable of such refinements. They thought they were getting a good, meaty melodrama written in the kind of lingo they imagined they spoke themselves. It was, in a sense, but it was much more. So good. Um, this essay is available for free. It's called The Simple Art of Murder. Uh, it was written in 1950. Um, and I, I will also just add to that because I will, I will also read this last little bit here. Um, uh, he, describing here, he's describing um, the uh, – but all of this and Hammett too is for me not quite enough. The realist in murder writes of a world in which gangsters can rule nations and almost rule cities, in which hotels and apartment houses and celebrated restaurants are owned by men who made their money out of brothels, in which a screen star can be the finger man for a mob, and the nice man down the hall is a boss of the numbers racket, a world where a judge with a cellar full of bootleg liquor can send a man to jail for having a pint in his pocket, where the mayor of your town may have condoned murder as an instrument of money making, where no man can walk down a dark street and safety because law and order are things we talk about but refrain from practicing a world where you may witness a holdup in broad daylight and see who did it but you will fade quickly back into the crowd rather than tell anyone because the holdup men may have friends with long guns where the police may not like your testimony and in any case the shyster for the defense will be allowed to abuse and vilify you in open court before a jury of selected morons without any but the most perfunctory interference from a political judge it's not a very fragrant world but it's the world you live in and certain writers with tough minds and cool spirit detachment can make very interesting and even amusing patterns out of it. It is not funny that a man should be killed, but it sometimes is funny that he should be killed for so little and that his death should be the coin of what we call civilization. All this still is not quite enough. In everything that can be called art, there is a quality of redemption. It may be pure tragedy, if it is high tragedy, and it may be pity and irony, uh, and it may be raucous, the ra raucous laughter of the strong man. But down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective in this kind of story must be such a man. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use the rather weathered phrase, a man of honor, by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. He must be the best man in the world and a good enough man for any world. I do not care much about his private life. He is neither a eunuch nor a Satan. 
nor a satyr. Uh, I think he may seduce a duchess, and I'm quite sure he would not spoil a virgin. If he is a man of honor in one thing, he is in all things. He is a relatively poor man, or he would not be a detective at all. He's a common man, or he could not go among common people. He has a sense of character, or he would not know his job. He will take no man's money dishonestly and no man's insolence without a due and dispassionate revenge. He is a lonely man, and his pride is that you will treat him as a proud man or be very sorry you ever saw him. He talks as the man of his age talks, that is, with rude wit, a lively set of the sense of the grotesque, a disgust for sham, and a contempt for pettiness. The story is his adventure in search of a hidden truth, and it would be no adventure if it did not happen to a man fit for adventure. He has a range of awareness that startles you, but it belongs to him by right because he because it belongs to the world he lives in. If there were enough like him, I think the world would be a very safe place to live in, yet not too dull to be worth living in. Uh, and I read that in length because I think it, it – I want to present – Chandler and Fool here because there's stuff in there that I think in 2019 you or 2020 you absolutely roll your eyes at right like the heart of this is still a sort of chauvinistic Americanism a sort a sort sort of like uh, if only there were enough uh, if only there were enough good men in the world who called who called a, a lie a lie like McAvoy is in here he's taught he's he doesn't know it yet <laughs> right but Sorkin <laughs> reads this and goes how do I make a man like that in the newsroom. Um, and I don't, but at the same time, the heart of it is actually very, what Sorkin leaves out is a common man, right? What Sorkin leaves out is someone, Sorkin wants the heroism of this person, but not the pettiness necessarily, Mm. or he might reframe the pettiness as heroism, which I don't quite think Chandler is doing here. Um, and, and I think that the, that, that desire again is, uh, really compelling the desire to kind of muddy the, the, the stories that we're telling. And yet, is there not something attractive about the clean murder mystery, the murder mystery that is solvable by you, the reader, uh, even if uh, – or, or that, that actually stifles you, the reader, even if a detective would have solved it instantly as Chandler lays out when, when criticizing the, the British detective story? And it's for that reason that I think it's so – Knives Out is so interesting because Knives Out is a, is a movie, Ryan Johnson's movie uh, from late last year, that both wants to muddy the water a little bit. And also be this kind of neat toy, this neat puzzle box, even if it early on in that film decides to try to pre- try to pretend like it's not going to be a puzzle box. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I, I'm curious if I'm curious what you all both think about that movie. Obviously, um, I'm curious what your individual histories are with detective fiction in general um, and whether or not really my, my real question at the end of the day is like, do you think it does this thing Chandler demands that good detective fiction do or is it happy to work in this previous model the the kind of british model of being a kind of quaint amusement um a sort of escapist fantasy though of course in, in this essay chandler also is like it's all fucking escapist fantasy man where are you escaping to what are you escaping from that's right. what's interesting and what's important anyway uh, both of you i'm curious y'all both saw it yeah i don't have like barely any history with detective fish and really outside of like the things that bubble up to like most mainstream stuff like the odd Sherlock's or whatever yeah okay um and really the thing that struck me about this movie was um to me the mystery was never about the murder and that's kind of hinted up at at the at the head, but we should say right we, now again we are definitely gonna, we're gonna we're spoiler we're going all spoilers. Yeah, this is right? total. This is oops, oops, all spoilers. all spoilers. Rob, you're good with that. You're good with yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, where they basically reveal what ha- what happened, like how the person died, right? 
Um, from that point on, I really felt that, or I, I, I personally felt like the more interesting mystery was the levels to which <laughs> each individual family member was or was not racist. Yeah. Uh, the answer <laughs> is all of all them. All of them. Yeah. The answer is uh, don't trust rich white folks. Yeah. I don't care what their degrees say. Yeah. I don't care who they voted for. Yes. Uh, it, it's actually that, that, that specific character that I think you're uh, referencing the, um, the, uh, I forget what side of the family she's on, but she's like going to college. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the patriarch of the family who is the person who dies, uh, was paying for this her Catherine yeah, should we, should we set up the movie um, for, yeah, for yeah, we, yeah we should do the yeah. <laughs> for people who haven't seen it but don't care about spoilers the premise of this movie Rob you just saw it again can you set up the premise of the story instead of me because it's been absolutely a month or two since I've seen it yeah so uh, Knives Out is the latest film from Ryan Johnson uh, obviously director of The Last Jedi which uh, we discussed at length the the, the other week Uh also a bit of a genre specialist and nerd, I think. Oh, yeah. To the point about we were talking about hard-boiled detective fiction. Ryan Johnson's also made that mystery film. Oh, yeah. Uh, he made it as Brick, and he straight-facedly set Dude. the entire thing in a high school. It's so fucking wild. That mo- I've not seen that movie in probably... <laughs> A decade now, maybe eight years, something like that. Maybe I was on, I was in grad school. I did a rewatch of it. That is a film that like you. So I watched that movie when it first came out in the mid two thousands, and then I watched a bunch of neo noir had a moment, and high school neo noir specifically had a moment with Veronica Mars and some other stuff. Mm. And to go back to go from Brick to Veronica Mars back to back to Brick is wild because <laughs> when you say he straight faced it, Brick is just they are talking like. Dashiell Hammett in characters. Patter. Yeah, in Patter. There's that scene where like he's suddenly at someone's party and it's like a Gatsby party. <laughs> and there's a woman, I don't even remember what the girl says, but like she has the patter of Daisy. Do you know what I mean? From from the great Gatsby. She has the patter of every of every femme fatale from every hardball detective story. And also is in the dress to, in, a, in a dress to boot. I don't know where well, the parents are. I don't think they exist. And I need to go back and watch it now that Riverdale's out. I mean, they oh don't. Right. There's like one, there's like <laughs> yeah. a principal or something, but that's it. Anyway. Well, the principal, oh, the no, the principal's basically the chief of police. Right, yeah, yeah So absolutely. the movie opens with uh, Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Right, right. Is mm. sort of your quintessential high school burnout and is sort of sitting apart from high school society. And the principal comes and hauls him down to the office and puts him on this case, which is that a uh, student has disappeared or died, I think. And they have this exchange where Joseph Gordon Levitt is like, why don't you just get your balls to do it? Oh, I know, because you can't send the balls running through these halls or else the people are going to get. And he just starts like unpacking the political dimension of the principal's job. <laughs> and by the bulls, he means like hall monitors and other like other right. teachers. Like <laughs> it's the principal is the chief of police and the administrative staff of the school are basically like the police and city workers of of this society. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the burnout, is the hard-boiled PI. It's such a weird and good movie. Uh, and that's sort of his, That's so that's how Ryan Johnson takes on the uh, hard-boiled noir. With Knives Out, he's taking on a very different sort of mystery, the whodunit, 
uh, mm-hmm. mystery. And we talked about this a little bit with uh, when we talked about Ordeal by Innocence last year, uh, which was that really good Agatha Christie yes. adaptation that aired on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And the nature of the whodunit, it's very much the, the it's very much the sort of mystery that. Chandler opens up kind of critiquing. They are puzzle boxes. The entire nature of a whodunit is you have someone, you know, someone gets it in the neck, and then you have a gallery of different characters who are in that victim's orbit who all had plausible motives to wish that person ill, but they also have what appear to be hard to disprove alibis. And so the mystery of how did this person who suffered this improbable, like, uh, crime how did they end up like why were they killed and then who actually engineered it in such an ingenious fashion mm-hmm. now oftentimes the ingenious fashion is really unsatisfying and i think this is one of the things that chandler is critiquing a lot of these puzzle boxes have really unsatisfying solutions uh murder on the orient express i think is your most notorious example Hercule Poirot is confronted with a murder on a train where nobody could have escaped. Nobody could have come from outside. Like somewhere on this train is, is the murderer, but no single person could possibly be the murderer. Do you want to real quick, we're going to spoil murder on the Orient Express. Just as a heads up. Best, you know, going in, uh, cause Uh. it's infuriating. The solution to the mystery is that literally everyone on the train. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Yeah, dude. It's, the, a, it's a conspiracy from the jump. God basically, damn it. the basically the the real Lindbergh baby kidnapper right. was on this train, and people are like, "Not on my luxury sleeper train well, across not, Europe." <laughs> they all have like a specific connection to the killer the and, fake and, the, and the fake Lindberghs, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's like it's such a it's such an exact like uh, uh, example of the thing that Chandler is pointing is talking to here, which is like there is the illusion of social commentary in that in that story in which, you know, there's, you know, corrupt police and, you know, police that didn't do their job right. And are people compelled to take justice in their own hands? But also it's the 47 Ronin where all yes. this, all the staff <laughs> yes. just love their, love their, their masters so, so much. much. Yeah. Uh, uh, look, I was just a chauffeur, but like once the, once they broke my master's heart, I have spent the last 15 years arranging this. Right. We all went our separate ways and, and it's to also, arrange this murder. It's also trolley problem philosophy, right? It's like the worst sort of like, now let's have okay. What if? What if? Okay, but what if there was a situation <laughs> where just ju- hypothetically, I know that morality doesn't exist in hypotheticals, and that real world uh, uh, ethics are constantly compromised by their contexts, that you have to take into account the socioeconomic reality of a situation. But what if we were on a train and there was a shitty guy on that train who we all knew was shitty, and also we killed him, if not for that troublesome Belgian? who was on the train with us because he had to go because he got a call to say he had to go home and he was on the train because of a favor and then he solves it and it's all us. But then the trolley problem is, what do you do? What if they were justified in the killing, huh? What do you ever think about that, Poirot? Huh? <laughs> Did you? And he thinks about it and he makes a decision. And I'll leave that to your yeah. imaginations. Um, uh, but anyway, so, I, I, like that style of that style of just gets what the thing I'm actually trying to say yeah. there is, is that however entertaining that stuff can be, um, it often feels like a lesson. Like it, all, it often wants to dress itself up in the clothing of a lesson or the clothing of like 
deep introspective analysis of, of the social when in fact what it is is like a fun amusement park ride. Um, and I guess if you're Rob, a very frustrating well, one. Well, no, I, I think I think that's a case of one of the most celebrated works in the genre and most famous works ends up being one of the weakest examples. Yeah, like sure. when, when this nature of mystery really works, when it truly is well plotted mm-hmm. and like – deeply mysterious as to how someone got dead and how someone arranged for that to happen. Like this can be really satisfying, but I do think as a, as a general rule, what these things do lack is any sort of really pointed social commentary. Now, Ryan Johnson might disagree. I was listening to the commentary and he, one of the arguments he makes is that uh, inherent to this form is that, there is a degree of social commentary because it compresses class that the quintessential form is there are servants, there are laborers, there are, uh, you know, bourgeoisie, there are people at the top of the social hierarchy as well. They're all by the constraints of these stories forced into contact. And we are forced to consider the connections and grudges they might bear toward one another. Right. I think where this is really explicit is like in a film like Gosford park, Mm. which is basically into like this is an Altman take on it. It's entirely playing around with this idea of there being an upstairs and a downstairs society. And there are a lot of invisible connections between them. Ryan Johnson is playing around with all of those traditions, but he's also, I think trying to do something else. Uh, This is in many ways, I think intended to be a companion piece to get out. Uh, I think like just from the title knives out, like kind of echoing get out. You've got Lakeith Stanfield, uh, Mm -hmm. who is in the film (laughs) says get out multiple times. (laughs) Um, but I think the play is all the, the, the movie is also deeply concerned about these elements of, uh, class and, uh, white privilege and white supremacy in the United States all through the lens of, and here is the setup that Austin asked me for 30 minutes ago, (laughs) a famous pulp mystery writer. uh, Was it Walton Thromby? That sounds Uh, right. Yeah. Thromby. Yeah. Harlan Thromby. Oh, like Harlan Nelson. Harlan Thromby is found dead one morning in his very spooky and gothic mansion. And it appears to be suicide. Uh, He appears to have cut his own throat during the night. And then a week later, all the people who surrounded him, his extended family and his nurse, uh, Marta Cabrera, played by Ana Darmas, are reconvened to be re-interviewed about the night before he died and whether or not this was truly a suicide or whether perhaps there is a murder being swept under the rug and something that was made to look like a suicide. And that at first feels like the mystery we're going to be getting, right? Somebody mm-hmm. cleverly disguised uh, a, a murder as a suicide. Right. And it has all of the trappings. It has all of the trappings. Giant house with, you know, innumerable rooms and passages, uh, uh, a cast of of characters who all have motives to hate each other and potentially... They're introduced with title cards. Yes, yes, 100%. (laughs) So you don't forget. So you don't forget. And also to, I think, paint the picture in your head 
that what you're about to get is a, like a closed door mystery, right? Is right. the sort of like, all right, and then the detective is going to show up and lock the door and say, no one leaves this house until we figure out who did it. I believe there's a murderer here. Um, and you get that vibe. Like, that is the vibe of the story that you're, sure. you're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to settle in. Like, this is going to be a Miss Mar- Mrs. Marple type situation <laughs> where, like, everyone is gathered and then bit by bit, you know, the, the genius detective breaks through all of the lies and reveals the truth at the heart of it. Um, and then that isn't really what – I mean, there is an element of that still. Right. But that is not the path the story takes. I think – Linda Holmes over at NPR wrote something pretty good about this. I think she identifies the structure of this movie in many ways addresses, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'll get to a quote in a second. It addresses a lot of the issues that can come up with this sort of mystery, right? Like at a certain point, you need to stop chasing red herrings. It gets frustrating to constantly see the detectives spun in circles and re-interview the same people. And it feels like stories like this can sometimes lose a bit of momentum because in between the setup and the payoff, there's just a lot of churn to mark time. And what Linda Holmes writes is what Ryan Johnson has done here is a masterful feat of balance, staying within the rules of the creaky old house genre, but making just enough adjustment adjustments to stay clear of story trouble because story trouble isn't uncommon in a film like this. There's only so long. It's fun to watch people accuse each other while clues (laughs) accumulate and red herrings fly before you start, start to want something to happen, something to be revealed. In Knives Out, there's not just one information dump, there are several. The twists are plentiful enough that even if some ungenerous person tried to spoil the film for you, they couldn't really. You'd still be missing chapters upon chapters of necessary information. I think that's true. I think it has three phases it goes through, and mm-hmm. there's a reveal at each. Yeah, and and I think the other structural thing that it does by taking the mystery out of the house is address one of the other kind of easy complaints to make about this particular style of whodunit, which is that the world outside doesn't exist um, or that the world outside only exists by the signifiers the characters bring in, mm. which is to say, yes, you'll have a working class person, but you've no, inst- you've no you know, uh, uh, outside of your own relationship to the working class, you've no picture of what it means to be a working class person. Yeah. Uh, here we get a, a, a pretty clear image of what Marta's life is, why it matters to her that, that the events go off, you know, in a way that keeps her family safe. Um, and in fact, we primarily get her perspective outside of the realm of, of the house, right? Everyone else exists in that house or when they show up in Marta's life. Um, but, we're, we're, you know, Ryan Johnson is not spending time, you know, looking at what Jamie Lee Curtis's life looks like outside of that house or the relationships of the people there. Um, and I think that's an important given the degree to which this is a film about race that like the race and, and poverty is like or, or class. Um, this is, uh, I don't want to say poverty necessarily because it's not like Marta. Marta is probably, Marta is definitely living a better life and her family are are more stable than many folks. Um, But it is specifically because she happened to stumble into a relationship with someone in the, 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 with someone incredibly rich, right? Like it is not because the system works. I think there's an element, it's also about service, I think is maybe the more pointed way to put that. It is about people who perform vital and necessary functions, often on behalf of people who are socioeconomically what we consider like better off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Marta is a not quite live in nurse, but she is staying a great deal at that mansion to take care of uh, this, this elderly writer in part because from he morning has to night from his, like all the time that he's awake in a day. Right. Like, yeah. And mm-hmm. she's also his main source of society. Right. Like that's right. the, the other 
thing. She says this early on. He needed a nurse, but what he really needed was a friend. Mm-hmm. And that is the thing that Marta realizes is part of her job. And it's part of the service she provides, but it's not the one she's allowed to charge for. Right. And I think this movie is very smart about what it understands about service work, about the skill it requires, about the empathy it requires. Mm-hmm. And it is, I, I think that, like, I think there's definitely class critique in this too, but I think it is a movie deeply interested in the often unconsidered relationships between people who work in service and the people who make use of those services. Right. It's actually literally about actual emotional labor and not the sort of (laughs) catch-all term that we sometimes throw around when we mean our friend is sad. It means literally an aspect of her job here is is to perform that emotional work because – and specifically because – no one else in his life will right, right? Um, because the the other relationships he has is, have all atrophied. Um, the just to like finish the summary so that people know what we're talking about if they haven't seen the film, but again want to hear us talk about it. The arc of this film, the three steps that you're the three acts, the three the, the kind of two reveals and three sections. One is you get to the house. Who's who done it? Uh, uh, Lakeith Stanfield uh, uh, is there along with another detective or. Another regular police detective. Yeah. And then in comes uh, the Daniel Craig character, uh, Benoit Blanc, with <laughs> the greatest accent I've ever heard a person do um, uh, as a private eye, a uh, private detective who's been hired by someone mysterious to investigate the death of Harlan. Uh, and then uh, about, I'd say, what, 45 minutes in, mm-hmm. you get the flashback reveal. As Detective Blanc is interviewing everyone, you get to reveal that, um, in fact, Marta misdosed him uh, with some medicine, or not some, but with, with morphine, right? Right. Uh, she and, had a thing of Toradol and a yeah. thing of morphine. She swapped them and juiced him with 100 milligrams of morphine. And couldn't find, and, the, and couldn't find the antidote effectively yeah. to, yep. to clear his system out. Uh, and then in his final moments, he goes, listen, you cannot take the fall for this. Whatever you do, you have to listen to me carefully, climb out the back secret window and da 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 and then let Because there's no saving him. Right. There's no, right, right. The whole thing is like- They do the math and ambulance is not going to get here. Exactly. We live out in the middle of the boonies. It's going to take forever for the ambulance to get here. We don't have the cure on hand, uh, which she's supposed to have but doesn't. Um, And- time to go uh and so suddenly the the film flips itself and says oh there is no mystery here mm-hmm. you know the thing and the film turns into a sort of crisis management story in which marta is trying to stay a step ahead of the family and a step ahead of, of daniel craig who is trying to figure out if there is some wrongdoing which here is especially difficult for her given that she has this one quirk yes. where she cannot lie without Puking. Then puking, like yeah. almost immediately. Almost immediately. <laughs> uh, uh, I've never seen someone hold a puking above God. the mantelpiece to be pulled down for Act Three, but boy, <laughs> does it Zach have done. If you if you put someone who pukes when they lie above a mantle in Act One, yeah. you, have to, <laughs> you have to pull them down and let them puke on someone by the end of the movie. Um, uh, also, you can pointedly put a knife above the mantelpiece. Oh, yeah. oh my God. That might not oh. be real. Yeah. That which I, like, is one of the oh, greatest so things. Good. It's so good. And that was one of the ones I saw coming really far, but was very yeah. happy. But oh, still, yeah. I don't care. Yeah. That's not the point. As the as as the review just read kind of suggests, like having that piece of the puzzle wasn't enough to make the puzzle. All it, all it did was make me go, ha, <laughs> alone in a theater where no one had laughed yet. Um, 
uh, when when it gets deployed because it's like seeing a trick play. Do you know what I mean? It's like seeing yeah. the quarterback. Oh shit! The quarterback sells the ball. Ha! Amazing. Great. Um, and that is that is a, a great deal of craftsmanship. And the third act, the third like after this, the second turn. I guess again, there's another turn after this in a sense. But the at some point, uh, Marta brings um, Chris Evans's character Ransom into <laughs> great <Ransom>. man, <laughs> uh, into the 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 conspiracy, so to speak. Uh, reveals to Ransom, hey, oh, I guess we I skipped something big here, which is. There's a will reading, as there always must be. Yeah. And the will reading reveals that Marta is going to inherit everything, the entire empire, yep. the house itself, uh, is going to become fabulously wealthy, um, and uh, the family instantly turns on her. Um, in, uh, they'd already, they already don't like Ransom, the, the kind of black sheep of the family, um, and even the socially progressive uh, girl who's out in college getting like a crit theory degree or uh -huh. something. I forget what the degree was, but you know, it's, it's, she's a, she's like a young lefty. She probably listens to this podcast, uh, <laughs> reveals herself to side with the family instead of siding with Marta, yeah. despite all of her, her high minded ideals and progressivism, uh, revealing that like it, down to there's there, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff here. There's lots of flashbacks of the family just being super fucking racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of like she's one of the good one stuff. Uh huh. There's a great shot of them someone handing her a plate as if she's a server, as if she's like right. Don oh. Johnson's character. Yes. Yeah. Don Johnson probably turning in one of his best dirtbag performances since Tin Cup ages mm -hmm. ago. Like Don Johnson has nailed a certain type of country club shitbag. Uh, <laughs> And incredible. it is on full glorious display here. Also, Tony Collette's Joni Thromby. Mm -hmm. um, as she is, she is the member of the family trying to start an Instagram lifestyle cosmetics brand. Yeah, she's trying mm -hmm. to start goop, um, basically. <laughs> it is it is a tremendous performance. Again, like the Ryan Johnson commentary is worth it. Apparently, she showed up with the character basically like fleshed out. Oh, incredible. like wow. the character didn't the character existed on the page. But she showed up with like, oh no, this is who Joni is, and it was basically so perfect. They're like, yep, just do that, do that. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, and then, so at that point, there's a moment where because they are both ostracized, Ransom and Marta end up kind of teaming up, uh, and. I guess it's at this point that someone also begins to try to blackmail Marta. Like, yes. like with yes. Marta, Marta goes back home, and is it is it the Don Johnson character who shows up at her doorstep? No, who is it's, no, uh, it's the uh, Michael Shannon, Michael Shannon character. Yes. Well. Yeah, 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 who shows up? I would just really quick. There's a bunch of family members and extended family members. You know, uh, partners, husbands, and wives. Uh, all of them have some business interest wrapped up in this. Yeah. Um, there are a couple kids. Again, one of them is a is is in kind of a liberal arts school. One of them is an alt right internet Nazi shit bag. And all of them are somehow in Nazi some child. way, yeah, some way dependent on the the fortune of yes the. Um, Parlin, yeah. yeah. One of them runs the publishing company. You know, one of them, but is that publishing company only publishes, only publishes Harlan his books. stuff. Yeah, uh, <laughs> one of them. One of them, you know, is getting money for her daughter and for herself to 
for her daughter to go to school and also pocketing dips, the rest, yeah. double dips. <laughs> everyone is involved in some way, uh, which is to say everyone has some sort of motive and has had some some deal of uh, uh, of the relationship um, falling apart with, with the, the patriarch of the family. And so then it becomes Marta and Chris Evans being like, we got to figure out who this blackmailer is. We got to get you out of here. We got to figure out a way to make sure this all settles itself. Um, and then the final turn being that Chris Evans was the the like manipulator from from the beginning. From the beginning, switches. This part's the, hard to explain. It is. There's so many. Like basically, he it tried is. to set up a situation where Marta would would do would exactly what she believes she did. Yes, but in fact, where he yeah didn't. Uh, and I, I love this. The detail. The, the thing that exonerates her is it hinges on she's good at her job. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like there's like you don't. Like you don't do a service job day in day out without like developing a almost subconscious feel for what is right yeah. and like how things are supposed to be. And so even though the Chris Evans character swapped the medication labels so that she would give him way too much uh, morphine rather than the Toradol, she. When she thinks she got confused, it's because she correctly identified, no, like, morphine looks like this in a bottle. It, it has this sort of viscosity. Right. Like, it has this consistency. So she the administers weight, right? the correct even dose. even, like, the weight yeah. of the... Yeah. In the test that he does, that, um, mm. what's his face? I forget his name now. The Daniel Craig's character. He is talking and, like, slowly covering, like, nonchalantly almost, the labels right, of right, both right. of the bottles. And he puts them both down. And she goes up, picks one up, shakes it a bit, puts it down, picks up the other one, and shakes it, and says, this is... This is the uh, morphine or whatever, which is just like once you've like had to dig into a bag so many times in your life to do this job, yes, you right. just get that feel, right? right. We should know <laughs> that there was a, a there's it's a violent suicide that, that follows the morphine dose, right. which which uh, is why people still believed it was a, it was a suicide and also why he's still dead. She didn't give him the wrong drug, and then he happened. She didn't give him the right to He's like, I need to die from something that's yes. not a morphine overdose. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's the movie. That's the gist of it. Right. Uh, and yeah, so I think- Well, I there think was the other death. There's, is there another death? <laughs> yes. Who's the other death? Uh, the, uh, the housekeeper. The, the housekeeper. Oh, does she die, die? Doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, dude. Fran that's, dies, that's what the whole th- That's okay. what the whole third act that's, uh, hinges right, right, on. Right, right, right. In, yeah. the, in the, la- the empty laundromat or whatever, where she's supposed yeah. to go meet the, black ma- the right, blackmailer. Right, 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 right. Yes, 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 yes. So my position, like, I think this is a really, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, it's a really satisfying mystery because it changes what it's doing on you a couple times. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it starts out as a, Traditional whodunit, which of this cast of characters is guilty. And then it turns into, and, and Ryan Johnson talks about this, very consciously a, what if it's a Columbo movie, but genuinely the person who committed the crime is innocent? Genuinely, like, they deserve to get away with this. And so, like, you're kind of, on some level, identifying with them. Because in some ways, every Columbo story is a horror story, right? You committed the perfect crime, (laughs) and then this shabby fucking dude shows up and just steadily starts pulling your perfect crime apart at the seams. Uh, What if it's that, but the murderer is sympathetic? And then this third act is, no, no, this was a whodunit. This was the perfect crime. How 
is a committed. I think the movie really works on that level, but what I think like makes it more interesting to me and makes me really enjoy it a lot more than a lot of similar mysteries is the fact that I think what this is ultimately trying to be about is this notion of what people of a certain class of a certain background feel is owed to them yeah, and the limits of their sympathy and empathy when that is threatened. Totally. I, uh, Kato, I'm curious for you on this because when you, when we first brought this up, you were like, we have to talk about this, <laughs> um, especially because of how the film uh, deals with deals with race. Um, and, and, you know, as we said, Marta is a Latina woman, um, from uh, what country? Don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We never get a single. They, uh, in fact, right. One of the running gags. Yeah, is that each time one of the family members brings up where she's from, it's a different, a South American country. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> which is to say, yeah, uh huh. Yeah, that is how invested those people are in this person, who they repeatedly say, like, "Oh, we'll take care of you. Like, don't worry, we've got your back." But when it, when it, when when the tables are turned, like they realize that that connection is not really there because she is not going to have their back ever well she's not going to have their back ever explicitly because of because the treatment right? yeah exactly and, and, exactly yeah. It's, or, it's it's totally or, justified i mean actually she totally would have had their back maybe she, she, she seems like a nice enough person right, where, where she would be like yeah of course you can have the publishing you can keep working at the publishing company of course your daughter can keep going to school like i'm not gonna bankrupt this family overnight yeah but but as they like slowly reveal like deeper and deeper like how yeah how far it's kind of it's kind of how far people will go in general to survive and with the different reasons that they need to. Like, Marta needs it to survive because that is her actual livelihood that given social different socioeconomic reasons, like, that is the job she's ended up in. And, like, it's a job that ends up in the hands of, of, of immigrants a lot, off, off, mm. actually, uh, as well. So, but the family needs needs this inheritance because they've all you know instead of and this is like a thing that comes up again and again like this idea of like instead of making something everyone they're all like it it put it lays bare privilege Mm -hmm. right like it makes it really like by the way if you don't know how privilege works this is sometimes literally how it works but here's kind of a, a metaphor for privilege is like they all need this the money from their father in order to continue these businesses that supposedly right. they're running these but mediocre it's really, lives basically right like yeah, they're not like, they are not striving they are not successful right, folks they outside think of. they are and and it become and it's made clear that they actually aren't mm-hmm. <laughs> because he can and has started even before the 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 suicide happens to like cut them off or threatened that he's cutting them off um which is which becomes later the motivation for ransom's character to right. plot this whole thing is that he knows he's the one that knows that everyone's getting cut off mm-hmm. it's about well yeah like Rob was saying earlier, they deserve this. This is their right. Uh, there's a joke made about the home and the, their it being their family's ancestral home. And <laughs> uh, I forget the exact quote, but it's like brought up that actually. Ben like, says he, they bought yeah. it from a Pakistani real estate lawyer <laughs> yep, in yep. the 80s. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, but I, I think there's... I think one of the other things that is, uh, you know, happening with this family is Harlan himself 
bears some responsibility for this. Like I think one of the yeah. other things that's running through this oh, is yeah. the way that wealth and privilege like kind of twists people, right? Like Harlan has absolutely used his position uh, to he's cutting this whole family off, but this is after years of letting their dependence on him build, right? right? Like there's a great scene between him and Michael Shannon as he tells Walt that Walt is not going to be the head of the publishing empire anymore. And you see Michael Shannon, this just hitting like, like a kicked dog in -hmm. some ways, because Walt might be shitty. He might be greedy. He (laughs) might be selfish. He's also someone who really liked working with his dad. Yeah. And really just wanted to make his dad happy and proud in some ways and show that he could do something too. It's, much more sympathetic, like Fredo type figure in, in, in some ways. And the scene unfolds and like, it's a brutal thing. Harlan does the night before he dies, right? Like he brings the hammer down on all these people. They deserve it to varying degrees. And as the movie unfolds, they certainly reveal their true colors. I think one of the, right. One of the things that really brings out the get out association for me is Almost all of these characters, when they see Marta, says the same thing. I thought you should have been at the funeral, yeah. <laughs> but I was outvoted. I was outvoted. And <laughs> it's, it's in the structure and the framing, it calls to mind uh, get outs. I'd have voted for Obama yeah, yeah, yeah. A, third a third time if I could have. <laughs> yeah. It's always this sort of allusion to, <sighs> damn, uh, I would have I, I would have done something, but, you know, it's just like that sometimes, and obviously it wasn't me, mm-hmm. but other people chose to go a different direction. Yeah. And everyone says that, and you realize someone is lying because they all think she should have been there, yeah. and yet she wasn't invited to the funeral. And so I think there's there's two themes here of, like, in some ways, this family is deeply prejudiced and blind to Marta's humanity, they're also very much a group of people who have been shaped and warped by the privilege that has been granted to them. Well, and also it's worth it's worth noting here, too, that like one of the most interesting things about the setup is that the different members of the family will all be able to sustain their lives after this to differing degrees. Right. Like mm-hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Linda, is a real estate mogul, is a real estate mogul, is is rich on her own, runs a business yep. that is successful. Yeah. She got millions of dollars in seed money. Right. Uh-huh. From of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but she will sustain herself. She will she will power through this in a way or would have. And yet, and so going into that the, the turn, going into the turn where Marta ends up being the one who gets the inheritance, you go, maybe you suspect, oh, the family is going to be cut in different ways here. You have the people who will be able to live through it and they like Marta and they seem like they're progressive and maybe mm-hmm. they'll side with her. No, 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 no. The they all family. turn into uh, inwards, you know, uh, uh, suddenly all of the, the issues among them, suddenly the fact that there is the Nazi grandchild on one corner and the, you know, the progressive, you know, Tumblr using granddaughter on the other. No, it doesn't matter. We're, it's all of us together as this this uh, big, strong, rich, white family. We have to have what is ours. Um, and then the second part of it, to go back to, to what you were just saying also, uh, the, the sort of like, if I could have done it, I, w- I would have done more. Even Harlan is is uh, guilty of this. He could have given Marta money when he was alive. Instead, right. he worked her into the will. 
right? Um, uh, he had no plans of dying. Like that was not. There was no secret. Like, and then I'm going to I'm going to kill myself after so you'll I get change. this money now. So I get this money. No, he could have just done that, right? He right. could have absolutely. And and the film could have spent the time if that wasn't like I can imagine something going. Well, maybe he was going to do that, and the film would have told us if he, that was his <laughs> long, if that was his plan. I promise you that would have been raised. Um, and instead, we have even him having this this failure, right? Which is he, even he is only thinking about these things in abstract terms, in, in the sense that a will can be a very material thing, but also very abstract. Like I, when I'm done, the people I care about will be taken care of. Um, I have no need of this anymore. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Unlike now, when I need this big empty mansion to myself, this big empty mansion that is part of why I am I I, I need social you know socialization so much because I'm alone in this giant fucking terrible place yeah. with the throne made out of knives. God, incredible. Can I just shout out here? Lakeith Stanfield's detective. Oh, he's so uh, good. <laughs> I hope he's in all <laughs> the, of the sequels alongside yeah. Noah Blank meets like so badly. Because I think the thing that I think can be really valuable in a piece like this is you need someone who feels like they come from a slightly different world. Yeah. And we have like his his deputy, the the Trooper Wagner uh, character, Noah Noah Sagan. Uh, he's the goofball, incompetent detective, kind of the, the kind of the putz. But Lakeith Stanfield has feels like a police procedural detective who stumbled into a locked room whodunit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? He has this sort of jaundiced, jaded, exhausted vibe with the entire thing where he doesn't look, this doesn't even look like a crime. He doesn't fully know why he's here. And he has this sort of like, he's not, he's not lazy. He's not incompetent, but he's a busy guy with an important job and he is bored and frustrated with this entire thing. And I love the scene where he finally, like the end of this sort of first act setup, where he finally confronts Daniel Craig's character and he's like, Benny, you know, I've come with you this far. I need to know what the fuck is going on. Mm -hmm. And I like that because a lot of this movie has a sort of heightened tone. I like that uh, Stanfield's Lieutenant Elliot feels like he is downplaying it because like, look, this is one murder. This is one thing that exists in his world this week. And uh, he's he's not here for all this nonsense. Totally. I he reminds me so much or he feels like he's pulled from the same cut from the same cloth as another another black detective who is the associate of of, a, of the great super you know genius detective, uh, which is Marcus Bell in Elementary. Uh, the the kind of New York PD, uh, yeah. like not second in command, but like the the second, uh, he's like a tertiary character. He's a supporting character along with along with like Gregson and obviously with Lucy Liu's uh, take on Watson. Um, and uh, I my all one of my all time favorite things in a detective story is this the sequence that happens. I want to say in se- season two of Elementary, where. Um, uh, Sherlock, uh, who is played really well by uh, God, what is his name? Why am I blank? Johnny, uh, Johnny Lee, Lee Miller, Miller um, uh, says to Marcus. Uh, Marcus, you know, kind of breaks down what's happening in the in a in a, in a scene of the, the crime, and uh, Sherlock goes like, "Have you always been this observant?" Uh, uh, and Marcus looks at him like, "Are you fucking kidding me right now?" And he says, uh, "I'm asking that quite sincerely. I was wondering if your exposure to my methods has helped you in any way." And Marcus goes, "Actually, before you came along, I'd never closed a case before. Neither had the rest of the department. Most of us were thinking, thinking of packing up and leaving, letting the city fend for itself." Like, yeah, motherfucker, we closed cases. There's, like we're real 
great people. moment, by the way. Yeah. Best Marcus Bell moment for me is um, there's a point where Holmes does his local New York historian bit. Oh, yes. Where he launches yes. into, ah, there was a <laughs> there was a 19th century insane asylum nearby. And there's a, a strange legacy of, and Marcus completes the story and looks at him and just like, yeah. I Googled it on the way over too. Yeah, 100%. 100%, right? Um, and, and I think that you're right that that uh, Stanfield here brings the audience in in that way um, because Blanc certainly couldn't, right? Uh, in fact, Blanc feels like he has to be part of the mystery in some in some way to the degree that he, is, he has to be a, a person who you suspect also. Stanfield is the only person here who you don't suspect and – Appropriately, he is the only other character of color, right? Yeah. Like there yeah. is an intrinsic, and, and you know he's a cop, uh, but in this one case, <laughs> when it's, when it's <laughs> Keith Sandfield, I'll allow it. Um, but there is an alliance here between between he and Marta in in some ways, down to the fact that like they got all the times that he's like, just let her go in another room. Can we just bring her out of the fucking picture? And Benoit Blanc, because he's a genius super tech, was like, I think she's the, I think she is the key to this case. And <laughs> and like, all right, fine. And she ends up being the key to the case. Uh, but that there is a certain, um, uh, uh, not just an affability, um, but a, a, a kind of allegiance of like, rich white people. Yeah, I know you've been through it. Yeah, I don't want to bother you. I know this is weird. I know you're in a situation. Where you are the person who, despite not being the person who's lost their father, is long term being thrown into instability here. We do, I do not want to have to call you in for another testimony. We've already gotten your testimony. And I like that bit of, of the story quite a bit. Um, I like this movie a lot. Like, so, I really do. And, and, yeah. and for me, like, the, one of the biggest things here is boy, I like Ryan Johnson as a filmmaker. Like, yeah. um, there's a point at which I have to stop counting flukes. You know what I mean? Like, I like Looper more than I thought I did. I, I like <laughs> yep. having seen Rise of Skywalker. I like Last Jedi more than I thought I did. Uh -huh. um, I like Knives Out quite a bit. I have to go back and watch Brick and, and Brothers Bloom to see if that's yeah how I feel about those Been years a while removed. Since break. Yeah, but but <laughs> like, right. I'm here's excited. my counter argument. Yes, it's not even a counter argument necessarily. I think I think Johnson is really great. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what makes Johnson effective though is he brings back a type of hit mm. that Hollywood and movies used to be pretty good at producing and have just largely disappeared, right? Like, Knives Out is an impeccably made film. It is a really well-crafted, well-written yeah. mystery. There is yeah. a care and concern and a, for how each... Visual storytelling, all the stuff that we yeah. haven't talked yeah. about is also fantastic. God! Yeah. Uh, Sorry, so, I just like, I remember is... the best line in this movie. I have to shout it out before I forget it, which is, I think I read that in a tweet about a New Yorker piece. That's it. <laughs> Done. Okay. Yes. Yes. God. Anyway, uh, I think I read about you yeah. in a tweet about a New Yorker piece. Anyway. His longtime collaborator, uh, Steve Yedlin, uh, mm. cinematographer, does an incredible job yeah. uh, with, with, with this film. Um, there's, again, on, the, the, on Johnson's commentary, Apparently, Can you set up Yedlin the commentary, has, actually? Because I think that's a, a really funny and interesting feature thing that he does that I don't think people know about because this movie's not yeah, on DVD. Yeah, he releases podcast commentary for his movies while the movie's in the theater. What? Uh, so you can download Ryan Johnson's commentary and bring it in with you on your phone. And then it gives you the title card where the commentary syncs up. So when you're in the theater, you see like the Lionsgate logo appear. You hit play on that file and you can be sitting there in the theater listening to the commentary track. That's fucking um, amazing. Which I did last night with the uh, with the, with the screener uh, that, I, that I've got, which was really nice. 
Um, but he he sets up that the Steve Yedlin like has a lot of techniques and even like post process solutions for making digital look like film. And so one of the reasons this film looks so class looks so classic in some ways is because like. Yenlin's in there constantly messing around with it to give it the characteristics that we associate with like film photography, even though it's entirely shot uh, on digital. But, uh, but the, but the other point I'm getting to here though, is Ryan Johnson is a scholar of movies like this. He's a scholar of this type of cinema and he is turning in like virtuoso uh, productions of these types and reinterpretations of these types of, of genre works. But I do sometimes wonder if it would feel as remarkable or as fresh to us if so many types of these movies hadn't basically been driven out of the box office in the last like 20 years. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they, like, the Who Done It Murder Mystery, or just the or just the or just the murder mystery movie, yeah, yeah, used yeah. to not be a rare thing. It is now, right? Yeah, I I so I've like spent the last year. I, I didn't really talk about this, but um, I've I've watched a bunch of this style of murder mystery in the last year, hmm. and they're all things that are on like. Britbox TV uh, <laughs> and other similar streaming services that are, you know, obviously maybe originally aired on BBC or other British television channels. And these are the things like the Poirot mysteries and and you know uh, Mrs. Marple and things like that that are that are the, the Christie style whodunit. Um, and and some of which have had you know stronger adaptations than just the kind of television movie style or the the television weekly series or serial. Um, uh, but there. That is where the television – that is where the, the visual mystery has like maybe gone to is just TV. And and mm. I don't know that's such a bad place for it. You you bring up someone like Columbo, right? Like there is a history of – we're talking about elementary. The, the, the televised serial is a kind of a good place for this style of whodunit because it doesn't – it might be the – it. This is not the sort of statement I make a lot because I don't believe it, um, but it feels like it might be the best format for that style of story, the most honest format for that style of, or, or, or uh, uh, platform for that style of story, which is here's a digestible thing. Um, here's a thing that you can eat and uh, you know watch and consume and move off of uh, and then and then move on with your life. Um, you, you may find that in something like uh, uh, an episode of Marple, there is some gesture at talking about queerness uh, <laughs> or about imperialism um, or about, you know, class. But you're not going to find anything revolutionary there. And I don't I, I kind of wonder if the filmic uh, model would almost overpromise or, or not overpromise, but it competes with my time right. spent in a theater where totally. I actually want to be challenged and not just entertained. I mean, in, in some ways, I feel like Ryan Johnson's kind of uh, pushing back against, or like is is yeah. kind of aware of this in yeah, the yeah, way totally. that he structured this movie, right? Totally. Like it's like three, it's like three episodes, like a one mini arc yeah. of, of um, a mystery. Like you can kind of almost see exactly where the episode would end. Yeah, they're like 42 minute episodes or whatever. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Totally. Um, um, and, and, and I think you're right also that it pushes back in that other way, which is like by revealing in the, at the end of the first act by saying, hey, here is, let me show you the murder. Right. Let me show it to yeah. you. Um, it pulls away from that style of whodunit, uh, but, but does still remain almost episodic in that sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think for me, this has been one of the delights of the end of 2019, the start of 2020. I think now I've seen this movie, I saw it twice in theaters. Oh, wow. And then once at home. Wow. Yeah, uh, because it was sort of a perfect... Like, I grew up on stuff like this. I don't think my parents have seen a new movie in this genre, like, in ages, right? So it's like, we've got to, we, we have to go see this. Like, mm-hmm. this is so your shit. And I'm not sure that they're familiar with Ryan Johnson, right? So uh, we went out and see it, saw it, and they, they enjoyed it a lot. Um, and then watching it with the commentary uh, the other night was, was really terrific. But I think, I, I think to an extent, what, what I really appreciate about this movie is that there is such a pull toward an ostentatious, old-fashioned quality when you're telling a story like this, right? There's There could be a very easy pull to a nostalgia, they don't make them like this anymore yeah, yeah. type of movie where you give... Where, where you basically try to recreate an old uh, Mrs. Marple uh, yeah. story or or something like that. I think it becomes a really vital movie, not just in the sense that it's crucial, but also in the sense that it is a living work Mm -hmm. in dialogue with its moment because it is taking these classic structures and then rather than setting them in a 1930s English manor house, it shows us present day America in it. And I think that is a brilliant decision. Totally. I am curious what happens next. They, you know, I think they've come out and said there will be a, another Benoit Blanc movie. Huh. Um, a thing I love about this movie is that it is Mar- is Marta's film. Benoit Blanc yeah. is there and is important, uh, is, is a secondary lead. They're mm-hmm. both leads. Um, I don't want to jump ahead 10 years and have had 10 years of Benoit Blanc helps the minorities. Um, I think that that's a risk. Uh, and I, I think there's a way, you know, it's a story that ends up, is there a model in which each time he kind of like flutters into someone's life and then that person is the person who helps solve the mystery of their own life and blah, blah, blah. Like right. Maybe, but at a certain point structurally, if he ends up being the the sort of like axle on which justice turns, you end up saying something different than what you set out to say. Right. Uh, but I'm curious to see where it goes from here. I, and I think, I think there are obviously ways to remedy that. I think strong casting and interesting storytelling and eventually telling his story and letting that stand on its own could be interesting. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Sure. I don't know where the fuck that accent comes from. Nowhere. Who the fuck knows? I want to find out. <laughs> Looney Tunes. Uh, yeah. Looney from Tunes. From literally. From literally Looney Tunes. From Froghorn Frog, Leghorn. Yeah. Fog, well, that's fog, the fog There are so many different flavors of Southern accent, though. If yes. You told me like, oh, no, this is like – People from this one like fifty mile wide corridor of Louisiana Bayou tend to sound like that. I'd be like, sure, yeah, I buy that. Yeah, totally, sure, sure. But it, de- but it, I did get flashbacks to Tim Curry doing Gabriel oh, Knight, yeah. Gabriel Knight oh, one. So, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, that God. name is French, but right? Yeah, well, it could be that could be Louisiana. Louis, I can't. Yeah, Louisiana. Is that what that accent? Up. Is that accent even from? Yeah. I I straight up read it like Tennessee. I could see it be Tennessee. I could see it right? be <laughs> That's why I was fake. like I could see Blanc? it being fake. It's he could probably be, I fake. Think it's fake. I think he's I really British. hope that's a thing. Yeah. The, he's hiding from the fake. mob, he's hiding from the queen. <laughs> I don't care. Who's he hiding from? Blanc. Oh Blanc? Really? Uh-huh. Blank? Blank. Huh? White. White. Yeah. White. White. Right? <laughs> Am I right? 
God. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that will do it for our discussion of Knives Out. Um, I think it's still in some theaters uh, right now, but I think it is starting yeah. to wind down its theatrical run uh, and will probably be hitting DVD and streaming uh, imminently. Uh, do you know Benoit so- comes from the French... Uh, uh, Benwost, which comes from the Latin word Benedictus, which means the one who says the good. He's the white guy who says good things. Finally, there's one. Fuck! That's all. God damn it! All right. You cracked the code, Austin. Uh, yeah, you should come see. You I truly am. followed gravity's rainbow. <laughs> to its, to uh, its conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> this is my, I'm going to get justice for me. <laughs> my justice. All right. Uh, our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Austin, where can people find you? At Austin underscore Walker. Cotto. At A underscore Cotto underscore appears. C-A-D-O. 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 I get a lot of T's for get some reason. You get a lot reason. of Cotto. Different, Ca- different Cato. person. Cotto. I'm okay. convinced somebody was like, I always look for 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 Cato, and I can never I can never find that guy's Twitter. Yeah. I am uh-huh. convinced that was deep levels of irony about <laughs> the fact that we joke Maybe. that you Maybe. yourself can't remember your, your Twitter oh, handle. Oh, could be. Uh, oh. That, that, was, that, that is my interpretation. That God is my headcanon in this be. situation, and I love it. Uh, that will do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Having a name that's one letter too long. One letter too long. God damn it. Sorry. <laughs> Please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of on your podcast platform of choice if it should allow such a thing. I think we're a five star podcast, but it's not for me to say. We'll be back again with Waypoint Radio on Monday. Uh, Maybe we have to figure out what we're going to do. We have to figure presumably, out what we're do yeah, it's we'll late in the day. Uh, we'll see how all this unfolds. We will see. Uh, but un- until Monday, my house, my rules. <laughs> Do not let yourself... No, not... Ah, I've lost it! Do not give into astonishment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, there's no way, like, the idea that, oh, yeah, there was an entire house here this entire time and nobody ever knew about it. In the basement. There's no good story there. 
Well, I mean, there could be a good story, but that you know what I mean? Story. Like, there's no uh-huh. happy story. Mm-mm. No. No, it's going to be terror. It's going to be... The Bronte sisters present. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the house under the stairs is not the movie I signed up to see <laughs> on this bus. Um, weird. But also, this makes sense as to the... When they said, like, oh, the new DLC is going to be about new characters forever ago, it was pretty clear that they were not just going to do, like, the next chapter of Three Houses. Yeah. When we do our Three Houses spoiler cast at some point, that'll be something we can talk about. At the end of the month, probably. That's probably right. Right? Perfect. Everyone know what time that is? Oh. You got it? Yeah, I got it. Okay. Boom. Yes. I am now at time dot is. All right. Shall we go on 12? Yeah. Okay. Perfect.